Well, good afternoon. I've spent uh, the last two weeks or so um, thinking a lot about endings, um, endings uh, particularly as it relates to in ending of life, and whether that's by death um, or by Jesus returning. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks just kind of considering that, and what will it be like, and what happens, and, and those kinds of questions. And as I've done that, there's been a song that has just popped into my head over and over and over again. And uh, I'm not a country music listener, but uh, this one is a song that I know. And it's, it's from 2004. It's by Tim McGraw. And uh, it is about, uh, the song is a conversation between two guys. One who just found out that uh, he's dying, and one who wants to know what that experience is like. And it, it starts, well, I was in my early 40s with lots of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. You know the song I'm talking about? We spend most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about the options and talking about sweet time. And the second guy is like just curious about what that's like. And so he says, well, what did you do? And the guy, the tone of the song totally changes. And the guy says, I went skydiving, I went, join me, Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Right? We know, you know the song I'm talking about. <laughs> that song has just kept playing in my mind over the last couple of weeks because there's, there would obviously be some sense of some... Um, measure of freedom if you knew the exact point that your life was going to come to an end. We, we would all probably live a little bit differently if we knew exactly when that point was going to be. And I've kind of thought about that over the last couple of weeks. But there's an even greater measure of freedom if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ that comes from knowing with certainty that ultimately Death has no hold on you. That there is an ending that we can know for certain that is so much more glorious than death is intimidating. And there's, there should be an even greater sense of freedom that just permeates the life of a believer as a result of knowing that to be true. Revelation... Where you know we're gonna this week and up here and in our reading we're gonna start to really put a bow on the Bible initiative of walking through Scripture and Revelations where we are this week and it is what gives us the ultimate picture of just how glorious that ending is. The Book of Revelation and the truth held within it is what makes it possible if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ to truly believe. And to truly state with Paul that to live is Christ and to die will be gain. It will be gain. No intimidation of that. doesn't have to be a fear of that. It is stone cold truth. And that that should present a measure of freedom for us. But something happens when we read the book of Revelation. And it's all about focus. 
it isn't that you know, life for a believer just ends at death. It is that there is this ending of eternal life in the presence of the full radiance of the full glory of the fullness of God. And, Re- and Revelation gives us that picture in its entirety. But when we get the focus wrong, it creates something totally different for us. How we come to the book of Revelation and see it and read it is an issue of focus. And so if you're a note taker, uh, this is kind of the main point. You might want to put like a star by this one. If you're not a note taker, tune in for 30 seconds and really lock this in. A focus on the uncertainties of Revelation creates obsession or anxiety. The other side of that coin is that a focus on the certainties of Revelation creates worshipful, motivating anticipation. When we focus on the wrong things in the book of Revelation, we leave ourselves in this place of total obsession with the, with the details or our interpretation of the details or this great sense of anxiety of what, is that, what exactly is it going to look like and is it going to be bad and am I going to be there if I'm a believer and, and we can get really anxious about that. To the point where it drives some people to put on a sandwich board and to go out to a highly populated area and just start screaming that the end is near, right? But the other side is that when we focus on the certainties in the book of Revelation, it creates within us just a motivated, worshipful sense of anticipation, I think there are two, there should be two motivating realities in the life of everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. One is past, one is future. That there is this past love and uh, clinging to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And that that motivates the direction of our life and the way that we live. But there's a future one as well. And it is the certainty that he's coming again. And when you combine those two things, there's all the motivation the life of a believer needs to just humbly yield ourselves to the will of the Lord in our lives. We have to get the focus right. So that's what we're going to spend our time doing this morning. Uh, We're going to work through most of the book of Revelation. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Revelation 19, uh, 20, and 21 and 22, the last four chapters of the Bible. But we are going to start in Revelation 1. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up, The first four chapters of the book of Revelation provide kind of like a setup, if you will, for the entirety of the book. They give us the context of exactly what's happening here uh, as we read Revelation 1 all the way through Revelation 22. And Revelation 1, starting in verse 9, is kind of the succinct statement of exactly what's to come. It says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's the context for what's to come in the book of Revelation. And so John... He's exiled on an island. He has a vision. And it begins with Jesus speaking to him. If you've got a Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red, you'll notice that the first thing there that I just read is in red, but so is all of chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
From there, most of it goes into your normal black text. That's because an angel of the Lord begins to unfold for John this vision. Jesus greets him. An angel presents to him this vision. And so John sends a specific address to each of these seven churches. And there's a constant refrain that plays itself out just over and over and over again in these letters. All seven of them are contained in chapters 2 and 3. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. It's the letter to Ephesus. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. The next letter is to Smyrna. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Verse 13, the letter to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Chapter 3, the second half of verse 1, it's the letter to Sardis. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And then the final letter to Laodicea. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Jesus saying repeatedly to these seven churches, I know. It's the same God who saw the wickedness on the earth before the flood. It's the same God who heard the Israelites when they cried out in Egypt. The same God who remembered his people who knit you together in your mother's womb. It's the same God who... Uh, when the fullness of time had come, quote, sent forth his son. It is that God who knows. And he says to these churches, I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know your tribulations. I know your trials. I know your faith. I know your situations. He would say the same thing if he were speaking to us today. He knows your heart. He knows your actions and your reactions. He knows your situations and your circumstances. He knows. And there's an encouragement there for believers and a warning there for non-believers. The encouragement comes through the form of chastisement to these seven churches. And I think that it would likely come to us the same way today. In 3.19 he says, Those whom I love, I reprove or I discipline. There's a chastisement there, but there's an encouragement. And the encouragement is that believers are encouraged to persevere because God knows everything and he is coming again. In fact, he says as much in chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hang on. Endure. Persevere. Why should you do that? Because I'm coming back. I am coming soon. But the other side of that is that there's a warning to non-believers. And it's subtle. It's not something that Jesus comes straight out and says, but it's evident as you read through there. He knows nothing, literally nothing is slipping by him, which means that at your moment of judgment, you won't either. You won't just skate by because Jesus didn't know. Unbelievers are warned that God knows everything and judgment is coming when Christ returns. And then in chapter 4, 
we get what is kind of the centerpiece of the book of Revelation. It's not the center in terms of the actual kind of linear text, but it is the theme, it is the thing that the book of Revelation comes back to over and over and over again. And it is this peek into the throne room in heaven that John gets. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumbles, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. John gets taken in the spirit, we're told, and he sees a picture of what's happening in the throne room in heaven. And he does his absolute best to describe that, but it's as if the confines of the human language are just totally failing him. The presence of God is there, and he resorts to comparing it as best he can with human language. He said it's like, it was like jasper, but also like carnelian, which are two different things. It was like a rainbow, but an emerald at the same time. It was like there was this sea of glass, but it was crystal. He can't really come up with the right words. It's as if we were to take Abraham, bring him to today, hand him an iPhone, and give him 10 minutes to play around with it, and then send him back and say, I want you to describe that to everyone. And he'd be like, it was kind of like a rock. But it was also shiny. And it was kind of like writing, but you didn't need a pen. It was kind of like talking, but you don't even have to use your mouth. I mean, it would be so hard for him to come up with the words to describe that thing. That's what John is experiencing when he sees inside the throne room here in heaven. And he goes on to talk about what's happening there. There are 24 elders. There are these four creatures, and they're all worshiping. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. In day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That image, John comes back to over and over again. The Lord will lay out something that's going to happen and then he gets a picture of the throne room and then he gets unfurled for him a little bit more and then there's a picture in the throne room and it's the same thing happening every time. It doesn't matter what John has just seen. There is just unceasing praise happening in the throne room of heaven. It becomes kind of the centerpiece, the theme of the book of Revelation. And then from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 18, Uh, and 19 are the details of the book of Revelation. When we think of Revelation, we typically picture what 
is given to us in chapters 15 through, through 19. I'm not going to walk through all of them. <clears throat> in fact, we're not really going to walk through any of them this morning. And there's a reason for that. Um, there's a concept I, I want us to keep in mind. And you could come back to Revelation and read the whole thing on your own. In fact, I would encourage you to do so. But when you do, um, this concept I want us to keep in mind is that as the church, big C, global church, there are some things that we hold with a closed fist. And we say this must be unmovable. They are issues of gospel centrality. Issues that if you were to change them at all would alter, and by altering, therefore nullify the gospel. A closed-fisted issue is like God's holiness, humanity's sin and brokenness, our need for a Savior, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, the resurrection. Those are closed-handed. We cannot alter those in any way. And if we do alter them, we've altered and nullified the gospel. And then there's a whole host of open-handed issues within the church, the big C global church. Open-handed issues are items of doctrine or practice that though we might have passionate beliefs or thoughts about or opinions about, they do not need to sever the unity of the overall body of Christ. They might determine where we worship and why we worship there, but it shouldn't cause us to look at a brother or sister who does so differently and say, you're not Christian. These would be issues like Calvinist versus Arminian theology, whether or not a person should consume alcohol, the method of communion used in a church, which day do we observe the Sabbath, what kind of music is appropriate to play in a worship setting. Those are open-handed issues. It's not that we don't ever try to have an opinion or a thought about them. It's just that we shouldn't allow our opinion to become so dogmatic that it causes us to break fellowship with the rest of the body of Christ. A lot of the disagreements that have taken place within the church over the years, unfortunately, have happened because someone decided to make a mountain out of a molehill. To take an open-handed issue and want to cling to it with a closed fist, even though there was no reason to. Much of the book of Revelation, including a lot of the interpretive difficulties from chapter 5 through chapter 19, are open-handed. It's on these open-handed issues where obsession can happen, and it's completely unnecessary. And so rather than walking through all of these, instead I want to lay out a framework uh, for how you can read and interpret and understand the book of Revelation. And this might be a little bit academic for the next few minutes, and I apologize, but I think it's helpful. Three open-handed issues that influence the way a person reads the book of Revelation. We're going to look at some charts uh, they're going to be up on the screens, but if you'd rather look at them a little bit closer, you can use your phone and go to www.thebibleinitiative.com, and you'll be able to look at them up close because they're on the website. The first is uh, three ways that people typically read the book of Revelation. This is like, what glasses do I even put on when I, when I go to open the book? The first is allegorical, which would say that almost nothing in the book of Revelation is literal. It all represents something larger. That the book is essentially the story of the final battle between good and evil that has been playing itself out since the fall of humanity in the garden and will ultimately consummate when Jesus wins. And that if you bog yourself down in the details, you're just going to get confused. So really all you need to keep in mind is that Jesus wins. 
That's an allegorical reading. Then there's a historical reading. And the historical reading actually breaks into two different categories. There's a preterite historical reading that says the majority of the book has already happened. It took place in the past. That Revelation 5 through 19 was future for John when he saw the vision, but that it played itself out in in Roman history, early Roman history. And that now we are waiting until Jesus comes back the second time and puts a final end to sin. That that's all we're waiting on in the book of Revelation. There's a classic historical reading that says the book happened, that it is happening, and that it will happen. That all of this is playing itself out over a number of years. And when it does, and when it's finally done, everything in the book of Revelation will have come to pass. Nothing will have been left out. These historical readings are more literal in nature. But let me even give a disclaimer on that. Allegorical to literal is a spectrum in the book of Revelation. It's not that there's a camp that says all of it is allegorical, and then one camp that says all of it is literal. Even if you tend toward a more literal reading, you're going to have to make decisions about what you think is symbolic and what you think is literally the way it's being described on the page. So that is a spectrum. And then the last way you can read the book of Revelation is futuristic, that all the events are predominantly literal, but none of them have happened yet. That at the end of the church age, which we live in now, there will be a short, intense period of tribulation that's going to culminate in the second coming of Jesus. You could put on you know, whatever set of glasses you wanted and read the book of Revelation through one of those three ways. And I will say this repeatedly this morning. There are faithful, godly, humble, intelligent, orthodox women and men who read through all three of those lenses. It's open-handed. You might have a preference. There's nothing wrong with having a preference. In fact, I would encourage you to study and try to figure out what your preference is, but it should never cause us to just sever fellowship with someone who thinks differently than us. However you read Revelation 5 through 19, what set of glasses you put on is going to ultimately influence the way you view some of the things that we're told. From 5 to 19, there is what we would typically refer to as, as the tribulation. In those chapters, it's recorded for us that there are these seals that are open, that there are trumpets that are sounded, and bowls are poured out. And typically, we think about that time. Uh, the most common way to think about it is that there's a seven-year, literal seven-year period, where this tribulation is going to unfold itself. And in relation to that seven-year period, there are differing beliefs on the rapture. The most common belief on the rapture is that it is pre-tribulation. That before all of these intense judgments start to play themselves out, believers will be raptured or taken to be with Christ. The reason that belief is most popular in America is thanks to the book series Left Behind. If you read the book series Left Behind, it was a futuristic reading of the book of Revelation that had a pre-tribulation rapture, and then that influenced the way the rest of the books played out. The, literally, like the opening of the first book is that I think the guy is driving down the road, and everyone is raptured, and now there are these unmanned cars and unmanned planes because pilots and drivers have been raptured. I will be the first one to admit that a pre-tribulation rapture sounds the most comforting to me as a believer because I'd rather not be present for the stuff that plays out in 5 through 19. But it's not the only way to read the book of Revelation. Some think that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, that like 
three or three and a half years in, believers would be taken to be with Jesus. So we would have to go through, endure some of what Revelation plays out. Others say, no, 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 the rapture actually would happen at the very end of the tribulation, that believers and non-believers alike would experience the things recorded in Revelation 5 through 19, and at the end of that, believers would be taken to be with Jesus. And there's a fourth view that says, actually, I don't think the rapture is a thing in the Bible at all, that there just won't be one. By way of lending support to the idea of a rapture, if you just want to jot some of these verses down, uh, the best evidences for a rapture actually actually come outside the book of Revelation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 is one that um, is commonly used. You could also take Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 30 and 31 about the Son of Man returning and gathering His elect. That's another one. And Revelation 3, 10 actually says, "...because you have kept my word about patient endurance..." I will keep you from the hour of trying that is our trial that is coming on the whole world. Those are the, typically the supports that people use for a rapture. So again, four different views. Intelligent, faithful men and women fall all along those lines in terms of their belief. It's an open-handed issue. And then the last one is all about Revelation chapter 19. Chapter 19 contains uh, two things. One is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 20, end of 19, beginning of 20, there is talk about a thousand-year reign, the millennium. And so there are three different ways that people view the order of the Christ's return and the millennium. This is the last little chart here. They all have a prefix and then the word millennial. So premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. The prefix tells you where Jesus comes back in relation to the thousand-year time period. A premillennial in our belief says that Jesus will come, then there will be a thousand year reign where Satan is bound and Christ rules, but then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is unbound and fully and finally defeated by Christ. That is a premillennial view. An amillennial view says that the thousand year reign is a figurative way of talking about all the time between Jesus' first appearance at Christmas and his final appearance sometime in the future. And that in that time, he is reigning. We know that he's seated on the throne. And so the binding of Satan during this time refers to the inability of, of Satan to completely stop the advancement and the preaching of the gospel. But that Jesus will then reign entirely when he comes a second time and defeats Satan fully and finally. And that millennial view, the key thing is that it is a figurative thousand-year period. That 1,000 years is a number that signifies completeness. And so it could be a long time, but when it is complete... Jesus will come again, millennial. And then the last is a post-millennial view, which says that uh, all of humanity, since Jesus' work on the cross, is moving its way toward a kind of globalized, Christianized state, and that we will arrive there where Christian ethics and morals will rule over the entire world, and at the end of that period, Christ will come again, post that millennium time frame, and then Satan will be finally and fully defeated. Three lenses you could read the whole book through, four different views of a rapture, three different ways you could think about Jesus' return and the millennium, and then all sorts of combinations of linking those things together. Which is why I say, we have to hold these with an open hand. There's only one being that knows. That's how the book of Revelation began. And he knows with certainty exactly how it's all going to play out. 
That doesn't mean we shouldn't care or we shouldn't try or we shouldn't do our best to understand Scripture. We should absolutely do that. But God knows at best we are estimating. So we hold those with an open hand. But then from Revelation 19 to 21, there are some certainties that we can hang our hat on. And so that's where we're going to spend the remaining portion of our time. I want to give eight of these. You could probably come up with more or you could say uh, that maybe, you know, there should be one less possibly. But I'm going to give you eight certainties from Revelation 19 through 22. And it starts in Revelation 19, 11. The first certainty is that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, it will be unmistakable. This is what Revelation 19, 11 says. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Do you have an exclamation point after horse? Me too, I'm going to read it again. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, it will be unmistakable. Now, is he going to be seated on a horse? I don't know. I don't think that's the important thing. Is the name actually going to be written on his thigh or not? Those are where we could hold open-handed, but what is for certain is that he is absolutely coming back, and when he does, no one is going to miss it. One of the things I love about the way that this year has played out for us is that we're talking about the second coming of Christ while we would normally be celebrating Jesus' first coming. And the comparisons, the contrasts, I think are interesting to make. In Jesus' first coming, uh, he is, there are animals involved. Uh, he's surrounded by a stable of donkeys or sheep or whatever happened to be there. But when he comes back, it's on a white horse. All of the prophecies about Jesus' first coming talk about him being this suffering servant. The prophecies about Jesus' second coming say that he is going to come back as king of kings and lord of lords. No suffering servant the second time. In his first coming, he comes as a baby with humility and meekness. In his second coming, he comes arrayed in all of his majesty and power. His first coming, he's rejected by many. But his second coming, he's going to be recognized by all. It's the fulfillment of that Philippians 2, that beautiful Philippians 2 passage, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the second coming. His first coming, he came to seek and save the lost. The second, he comes to judge and to rule. The first time he came, it was in this kind of incognito sort of way. The second time, it's going to be in all of his splendor. What's important to just note is that the first and the second coming are all of one purpose. That he has one work, the Son, that he has come to do. Graham Goldsworthy, 
uh, commentator says it this way, that Christ does not return to do some new or different work. His return in glory will be to consummate the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection. John Piper says it this way, when God's grace has begun in our lives through the first, or what God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming of Christ, his glory will complete in our lives through the second coming. We've been saying it this way over the course of the year, that the Bible is the unified story of the glory of God in redeeming humanity from their sin, from start to finish. One work all the way through. It began with an unobstructed view of God's glory in creating a perfect and sinless world, and it's going to end with an unobstructed view of God's glory radiating in the center of a perfect and sinless world. And all through the middle... Sin enters and severs humanity's relationship with God. And the Son comes once to offer salvation from that sin and once to offer restoration, glorification, and judgment. One story. The next certainty, if you jump down to Revelation uh, 20, verse 7, and it's that Satan and sin will be finally and fully defeated. This is what it says. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Satan is going to be defeated, and that fight will be over before it even begins. In the same way that God's creation is sudden and immediate and almost kind of breathtaking in, its, in the way that it comes about, God speaks and there's light. God speaks and there's land. There are continents. There are animals. There are plants. That's the way the final battle is going to go, too. Satan won't even have time to draw up his armies, and God will speak, and it's just going to be over. Eternally. There will be a final judgment. That's the next certainty. Look at verse, starting in verse 11. When I saw a great white throne, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Remember that throne room scene from chapter 4. That's where this judgment is going to take place. Every person who's ever lived will come before the throne, and your name is either in the book of life or it's not. And that is based entirely on the work of Jesus, not on you. But there will be some sort of accounting for the things that we've done in life. Those who have their faith in Jesus from that point forward eternally are only going to know life, and those who don't are only going to know a second eternal spiritual death. There will be a judgment. The fourth is that hell is real and it is eternal. Look at verse 15 of chapter 20. It's the last verse. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the same place that Satan was thrown into, the lake of fire and sulfur. And we're told that he's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And there's no mention that the fate of those who don't have their faith in Jesus Christ, whose names aren't found in the book of life, have any sort of different fate. Even if you took a very figurative, allegorical reading of the book of Revelation, you might be able to say, you would be able to say, okay, maybe there isn't an actual lake of sulfur and fire. That maybe doesn't exist. It's symbolic of something different. 
but you would not be able to get around the fact that those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, whose names aren't written or found in the book of life, are sent to an eternity of separation from the glory and the goodness of God. That is a certainty. That will happen. There are times where reading the book of Revelation just makes our heart race. We read something like that picture from the throne room, and you just you see John trying to describe the glory of God, and your heart kind of starts to race. But there are other places in the book of Revelation that make our heart break. This is one of them. There will be a final judgment. And hell is real and eternal. And working in concert with one another, those two things should lead us to a deep, deep desire to share the message of Christ with every breath that we have to every person that we encounter for all of our life. The fifth one, there will be an eternal new heaven and new earth, the first verse of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. One of the things we often miss when we read or think about or talk about Revelation is that all of creation will be restored. All of creation was marred by the presence of sin. It was broken by the presence of sin. And one of the things that the book of Revelation tells us is that all of that will be restored. All of creation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, the sixth certainty is that sin will not be present. Look at verses 3 and 4. And behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Sin is gone forever. Not even a trace of it is left. There's no more separation from the presence of God. There's no more need for a temple or a tabernacle or for sacrifices because God is going to dwell with his people eternally on that new heaven and new earth. I would go so far as to say that there won't even be a remembrance of the presence of sin. It will just be wiped away and we will bask eternally in the full radiance of the glory of God. If you jump over to Revelation 22, these are the last two. The radiance of God's glory will be on full display forever and ever. I love Revelation 22, 5. It says this, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When a light bulb burns out at the Fritzen house, it remains burnt out for months. On new heaven and new earth, there's no need for light bulbs, which means they're not ever going to die because it is the glory of God on full display for all of eternity that brings light into that place. And it will be that way eternally. And then the last is that believers wait with worshipful, motivating anticipation. If you're looking at kind of the last um, 15 verses of the book of Revelation, starting in 6, ending down there in 21. My heading says Jesus is coming. And there are three different times there that Jesus speaks. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he and John kind of trade back and forth there. And in 20... This is what it says. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. And John's response, amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. No trembling and fear over the tribulations that come in between. Nowhere in the book of Revelation does John stop to ask a litany of questions to the angel who's presenting these things to him. He just has this worshipful expectation. Come, Lord Jesus. I think it's because of where the book started. Flip back to Revelation 4 with me. All throughout, John is given this picture of what's happening in the throne room in heaven. No matter what judgment is uh, shown to him, no matter what tribulation he's witnessing at the time, he bounces back and forth to this picture of what's happening in the throne room. And what's happening there is worship eternally. And then you get this picture of the end of all things. And that's what's going to happen eternally for all those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, which means John has no fear of what's to come in the middle. No obsession, no anxiety. Instead, worship. That's what the book of Revelation should do for us when we read it with the right focus. Let me just read this again. John 4, starting in verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It is in anticipation of that for all of eternity that we read the book of Revelation and we say to ourselves, Come, Lord Jesus. Day and night, night and day, there's one thing happening around the throne in heaven, which means that day and night, in night and day, on new heaven and new earth, when we spend eternity in the unhindered presence of the Lord, one thing is going to happen. He's going to eternally receive the praise and glory that he is due day and night, night and day, day and night, night and day. Let's sing together.